This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Tuesday, October 8th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Donald Trump has cut a deal with Turkey, which could lead to the slaughter of Kurdish fighters, or just Kurdish non-fighters. It was a horrible decision. It was made rather impulsively by all accounts. It's the hallmarks of a poor process. But in a way, it is the one norm of the presidency that Donald Trump has upheld. I said it before, I'll say it again. Selling out the Kurds is what the U.S. does. And not just the U.S., pretty much the world. I know all of this because in 2003, Slate ran what became an ongoing feature called Kurd Sellout Watch. The history of the Kurds getting sold out or screwed was laid out by the author Tim Noah. For the Kurds, getting screwed is a tradition. Great Britain, France, and Italy screwed the Kurds in 1920 when the Treaty of Sivra divided up the Ottoman Empire without making a firm commitment to create a Kurdish state. Turkey screwed the Kurds in 1923 by putting down a Kurdish rebellion. Iran screwed the Kurds in 47, 75, and 79 when Ayatollah Khomeini cracked down on an autonomous Kurdish enclave. Iraq screwed the Kurds in 1970 and 74 and 91, and of course, by gassing the town of Halabja in 1988. Now, when Tim was writing the Kurd sellout watch, it was 2003, and what happened was the U.S. had just agreed to give Turkey free reign over Kurdish regions and not allow Kurds to have their own country. Now, the Kurds would wind up establishing Kurdistan, which is pretty much the most functional part of Iraq. It has the oil. It's a good part of Iraq, but it's still part of Iraq, you may have noticed me saying. Also, in 2007, the U.S. pretty much allowed Turkey to carry out, no, not pretty much, very much, allowed Turkey to carry out a bombing campaign against Iraqi Kurds inside Iraq. By the way, that was the biggest attack on Iraq since the U.S. invasion in 2003, which occasioned the Kurd sellout watch. Now, President Trump says Turkey won't do the same. They won't attack the Kurds because of him, because he tweeted, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, Considered to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. I've done it before. First of all, he is paraphrasing the Wizard of Oz, the great and powerful and unmatched wisdom. Secondly, our maximalist president with a fourth grader's understanding of economics and power is not to be trusted. He promised fire and fury with North Korea, said trade wars were easy to win, and to quote from the Kurd sellout watch from 2003, an alliance that relies on peak at someone else lacks a sturdy foundation. That is the president basically taking that critique and proudly turning it into a motto. Turkey will ignore Donald Trump, and why wouldn't they? His own military ignores him. On the Daily Podcast today, New York Times reporter Eric Schmidt said that's exactly what the military is doing. And then the military's plan was basically to pause there rather than to continue further and just not talk about it a whole lot hoping the president wouldn't focus on the extent to which the American military was continuing its operations there and always telling him whenever he asked that we are on a plan to draw down. And they were. They are eventually going to do it. They just maybe weren't going to do it at the pace that the president initially thought about. Trump is titularly the commander in chief, but his own commandees are ignoring commands on the assumption, the correct assumption, that he can't and won't pay attention. But you know what? Long may the Ukraine scandal roil and obsess him. Otherwise, our president might start paying attention to something other 
than immigration and doing damage in those areas too. On the show today, we return to China and the sports media's response to Daryl Morey's tweet that it's wrong to oppress citizens of Hong Kong. But first, when javelins boomerang, the weapon system that was the quo in Donald Trump's non-existent yet plain as day quid pro quo is the javelin missile. What's so special about a javelin? Let's find out. And while we're there, let's check in on other military developments with Aaron Mehta of Defense News. Not to get defensive, but let's get defensive. Aaron Mehta is the deputy editor and senior Pentagon correspondent for Defense News. And let me tell you, if you're working at Defense News, that is the plum assignment. It's like being the treasurer of the School of Business. Aaron, how are you? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate the hype intro. That's great. <laughs> I just want to ask about so many things, but let's start with uh, the Ukrainian negotiation. You know, that was about if there is an impeachment and there is an inquiry, it will be about the favor. It was... Maybe not a quid pro quo, but there was a quid and there was a quo. And the quo, depending on the order of how you think about things, is javelin missiles. The Ukrainians wanted javelin missiles. So I have a couple questions. What's so special about javelin missiles and why'd they have to ask nicely? It seems that other countries like Saudi Arabia don't really have to get on their knees and beg for the missiles. I mean, they were paying for them in full. So what's that all about? Yeah, the history of the Javelin missile in Ukraine over the last couple of years is actually really interesting. So Javelins are basically uh, man-portable anti-tank weapons. The Ukrainians want these things. They're pretty common. You see them sold kind of to various partners and allies out there. The Ukrainians have been asking kind of since 2014 when the Russian forces invaded Ukrainian territory for these things because Russia was coming in with tanks. Uh, sorry, not Russia technically. They are good Russian citizens who just happen yes. to have military equipment and want to go into the Ukraine. Little green men, yes. Little green men. So... Ukrainians asked the Obama administration for Javelin missiles pretty early on and were told no. The Obama administration was very concerned about giving kind of what's termed offensive weaponry to Ukraine in concerns that it might inflame the situation, lead to greater Russian involvement. Uh, and they were trying to figure out how to kind of politically handle the situation. John McCain was a big advocate for them in Congress and, and butted heads with the Obama administration over this in 2015, 2016. When the Obama administration ended and Trump came in, pretty quickly they agreed to sell javelins early on to Ukraine. Kane was pushing hard for them. Members of the kind of both parties in Congress were in favor of it. And it was seen as a simple way to kind of counter Russian influence in the region, to arm a country that we're trying to build relations with and make kind of everyone happy. Okay, hmm. so that was 2016, early 2017. Fast forward to now, where they've become this flashpoint around this whole impeachment procedure now. I don't think anybody who was involved in the Javelin discussions would have thought this is where it would end up. Mm -hmm. But just catch me up on what was officially agreed to and why would a favor, though, need to have been asked? So Ukraine got its first tranche, and, and again, I believe it was 2017, actually kind of reusing them 2018 in demonstrations and, and showing them off. And apparently they were being effective in the Donbass, the area where Russia is actually still kind of in an ongoing conflict with Ukraine, which we don't talk about a lot here, but there is active war going on in Ukrainian territory still. They wanted to buy more because, you know, you use these things and then they're, they're gone. You don't get them back. Uh, and this is where it seems like, based on reporting, that there, there's kind of this connection to this question of whether Trump said, okay, basically, if you guys want this stuff, we're going to need something back from you. I'm going to need something back from you. According to reporting, based on the phone calls, I don't want to get into the specifically, you know, was this a quid pro quo or anything like that? I think it's from a defensive standpoint, the Pentagon certainly supports Ukraine getting these things. You've seen 
the State Department largely been supporting it. Members of Congress on both sides certainly support it. It's seen as a tool that the Ukrainian military needs and should have. And I think there was a lot of confusion when it was kind of paused for this review that was apparently put on by the Trump administration, uh, reportedly run through OMB. The Pentagon certainly didn't have a hand in, in causing that pause. They were told essentially, hey, we're putting this on a pause. They didn't know why they wanted Ukraine to get this stuff. So it does bring up another theater, if you will, which is Iran and Iranian-backed drones that were shot down. And there's been more reporting on this, but uh, Donald Trump was just minutes away from pulling the trigger on an Iranian strike, and then he decided not to. He said because he got a report about how many casualties would be incurred on the Iranian side. There's been some question if that were report was accurate, because if you do a strike at night, it won't be you won't be killing uh, all the people who normally are at a site during the day. But what this gets to, to for me is that the reporting on this issue has largely fallen along the lines of there are traditionalists or at least the majority opinion within the Defense Department thinking that if you don't stand up to Iran, you will get more Iranian incursions. There is another side of it, I guess, articulated by Trump's actions, which is we'd rather just decrease the temperature overall of uh, strikes in the region. Is this a uniform opinion among defense officials? Are there people who will say that not striking at the Iranians was a prudent thing to do? You know, the I would say in the defense orthodoxy, the kind of more hawkish community of, of DC people, there's a sense mm-hmm. that, hey, Iran has to be pushed back in some way. Uh, whether that's just more increased sanctions, whether that's a military strike on a certain base, whether it's a cyber operation, which, by the way, may well have happened without being publicized. I've certainly done cyber operations on Iran in the past. Yeah, uh, Stuxworm was Exactly, that? yeah, the Stuxnet the, the took yeah. out a, a part of their nuclear facility they were working on. You know, there's a sense that if, if Iran isn't pushed back, they'll just keep doing stuff more and more. People will point to the fact that when a U.S. drone was shot down over the summer, the U.S. didn't seem to really retaliate, and then now look what they did this time. So that's seen as escalation in some circles. But there's a lot of people who also say, look, what it, there's limited options here, because unless you're willing to go full score war into Iran, there's just only so much that we can really do as a country based on just their posture and our posture. And people will argue, well, is this worth going to full on war with Iran? You know, it, you're getting both sides of the argument. I think in D.C. in the national security community, Certainly inside Pentagon leadership, there is a lot of skepticism about Iran that they can be dealt with as a potential good actor and, and mm-hmm. can maybe learn from some lessons from stuff. And I think there is a sense of, hey, this might be the time we have to do something more robust. But we've seen from Trump pretty consistently throughout his three years now that he doesn't want to go to war. He's very conscious of Afghanistan, Iraq, and his belief that his voters don't want to be dragged into another war. And I think that's kind of a thing that, you know, for lack of a better term, trumps everything else in his mind is, I don't want to get sucked into another war here. Mm. So let's talk about the two most important people in the military or to the military, other than the commander in chief, which is, say, the uh, secretary of defense, who is the most important civilian, and the chair of the joint chiefs of staff, who is the most important of the uniformed personnel, Mark Milley the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs. My question is, how much does the individual occupant of that job really change things? You know, there's a saying you'll hear around Washington circles that personnel is policy. Mm -hmm. You know, it matters who the person is who's sitting in these chairs. 
for Mark Asper, the Secretary of Defense, and Mark Milley, the, the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that's actually a, a potentially good thing for the Pentagon because previously they were the Secretary of the Army and Chief of Staff for the Army, the top officer there. They worked very well together over the last couple of years there. They apparently have a good personal relationship and a very good working relationship. Neither was considered the leading contender to become the next secretary and chairman. Pat Shanahan, who was the number two at the Pentagon under Mattis, had been expected, and in fact, Trump had said he intended to nominate Shanahan to become Mattis's replacement. And then kind of a, a weird little scandal broke out about his divorce and some issues with the family there, and he ended up dropping out. And all of a sudden, Esper became the nominee. With Milley, he was kind of seen as a finalist, but it had been expected that it would go to David Goldfein, who's the Air Force chief of staff, who was seen as the Air Force's turn to take this job. Some reports were that Mattis and Dunford, who was the previous chairman, preferred Goldfein over Milley. But Milley reportedly worked pretty hard to get in with Trump and, and got his approval and caught his attention. And here we are. So I had Richard Clark in here, and uh, he told me, you know, former, former State Department official, former coordinator for security and counterterrorism, he told me that when they do the wargaming, America loses to China, and it's not so clear that we would beat Russia. Do you hear that? Oh, yeah. That's a pretty common refrain you hear quite a bit now. The Pentagon is freaked out about China. Less so Russia. There's a sense that, you know, you can deal with Russia minus the nuclear aspect, which is kind of a wild card because Russia mm -hmm. has put a lot of money into weird nuclear programs that, as we've seen recently, may yeah. or not work. Yeah, and the United States has withdrawn from nuclear treaties. <laughs> it has, although it would argue that Russia had already broken that treaty for years, and so it was just mm -hmm. you know, reciprocating kind. You can take that argument as you will. Okay. Um, with China, there's a sense that because the U.S. has spent so much money, treasury and focus, Afghanistan and Iraq, it wasn't investing in new technologies. And China very quietly looked at what the U.S. was doing and said, okay, they're leaving the high-end capabilities alone. They're not investing. That's where if we invest, we can provide overmatch. And that's always what the U.S. did. The U.S. was always great at saying, okay, the enemy only has this type of stuff. We're going to invest in stuff that can counter that. And a couple of years ago, you started to hear it around 2015, and then especially in 2017, it kind of just boiled over the surface because it became this idea and this consensus in national security circles that, oh, no, China's good at this, and, and they're investing a lot, and they're overmatching us in things like hypersonic weapons and AI and, and high-end technologies. And huh. they haven't beat us yet, but they're getting damn close and we need to turn around and invest heavily. The problem is you can't turn around a $750 billion defense budget all that fast. And depending on still investing in things, probably because we have to, because we're still in Afghanistan and Iraq, still investing things in older technologies that aren't going to be relevant if there is a war with China. And trying to get that turned around is a big thing of what Esper and Millie and, and other folks in the Pentagon are focused on right now. What are you most optimistic about in the world of uh, things that could kill you and the men and women who run those things, Aaron? Man, I don't know. Optimism is not part of the job description, my friend. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I'll say this. It's, this is a wonky thing, but it's good. The fact that they're actually getting bodies into the Pentagon is a good thing because uh, this has been, I think, Actually staffing jobs actually staffing like uh, a normal administration would? You yeah, mean? like having an actual Secretary of Defense, having a number Ooh. two in the department, these crazy ideas. Me. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's yeah. still over a dozen Senate confirmable spots that are open. And frankly, I don't know how they're going to be able to fill those between now and the end of the election, because generally it's going to be tough to fill people towards the end of administration. It always is. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they've, they've pushed through a lot of people. They're pushing through more. 
that matters. It's wonky. I know a lot of these people are people that most people are listeners are never going to have to know about, but they're people who make decisions and guide billions of dollars of technology and policy. That matters. The other thing is, you know, if if you're we hear a lot about the Trump administration as being kind of bellicose and, and mm-hmm. Trump loves to tweet out things and fire and fury, et cetera. If you look at the actual actions, Trump is very hesitant to actually use military force. The only time we've really seen it was when the strikes in Syria, which happened twice. And in both cases, they were very standoff weapons where U.S. forces really were not in danger. Um, and they were pretty much just taken out a, a chemical facility, which may have been abandoned earlier in the day because there may right. have been signaling on it. It was a whole thing. Well, the only time we've seen it that rose to the presidential level, I mean, we saw it in situations gone wrong in Africa, and we see it all the time in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Right, yeah. And that's, I don't want to say the day-to-day kind mm-hmm. of natural stuff the Pentagon's doing, but that is, that's gonna, the, those operations are stuff, counterterrorism operations, the continued operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's going to happen under every president. It certainly happened under Obama. It's the next level stuff, the idea of, oh, are we going to go to war with Iran? Are we going to go to war with North Korea? Are we going to go to start something with China? Trump has clearly walked up the line several times, both in North Korea and Iran, notably. And by his own admission, again, with Iran, he tweeted out that he was minutes away. The planes were in the air. They're going to go strike. And then he pulled them back. He's shown a general reluctance to get into military conflict. So for folks who are worried about that, I think that's something to keep in mind. It's maybe his most consistent national security policy, frankly. The challenge now going forward is other countries are just aware of this as I am. So are we going to see some of these countries pushing that line? We've seen it with North Korea, arguably. We said, no more missile tests, no more missile tests. North Korea said, okay, here's a missile test. Here's another one. Here's two. And Trump has essentially said, well, they're little missiles. I don't care. So Hmm. the line just kind of keeps shifting. And the big question that everyone in the national security community is kind of constantly chewing on right now is, where's the line that Trump would want to get involved with something? Aaron Mehta is deputy editor and senior Pentagon correspondent for Defense News. Thanks for joining me again, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me, man. And now the spiel. Perhaps this is a moment for Americans to realize how bad China is. Not as a boogeyman, not as an act of menace, not because of anything having to do with xenophobia, because they are a repressive autocratic state that actively monitors their citizens and aggressively seeks to punish any dissent. Dissent from within, which is a big reason why the protesters in Hong Kong are protesting, but also dissent from without as Rockets GM Daryl Morey engaged in when he tweeted his support of the protesters. By the way, dissent from without isn't even dissent. It's someone who isn't your citizen having an opinion, and in this case, the right opinion. This incident, which should not have been an incident, was merely voicing freedom good, repressing freedom bad. It was met by many inadequate responses from many quarters of the American public, but specifically the American sports media. Let us work our way up from the unsurprising to the truly disappointing. The lowest ladder of cogent informed response was from sources who you'd never expect to have insightful conversation anyway. The boys at Barstool Sports did not fail to deliver. Big Cat and PFT commenter delivered by fumbling. Someone explain to me what's going on. So So, I fully understand. Okay, so... There's there are protests going on in Hong Kong. As somebody who has been to Hong Kong recently, um, 
I think they're centered around drug usage and like not enough Molly. Not enough Molly. Yep. They're actually centered around they're they're upset that the Chinese government is trying to enforce their own extradition laws on Hong Kong and kind of Hong Kong exists as its own district, right? Mm. And then China Amsterdam. Is, yeah, it's like Amsterdam or like Use it all in like shows that I've watched. Okay, so it so Hong Kong's like Amsterdam, right? Got it. And then Charles Clay and the entire state of Maryland are like, shit, we're going to make you Mm -hmm. stop using drugs. That is from Pardon My Take, by the way, the number one sports podcast in the Apple rankings. The number two sports podcast in the Apple rankings is The Bill Simmons Show. Simmons talked about it briefly, saying he didn't know enough about the situation, but would look into it to become informed. Simmons is friends with Daryl Morey. He calls him Daryl on the show, first name basis. And in fact, Simmons gave him the nickname Dork Elvis, which has stuck with the Rockets GM and the founder of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Simmons has yet to post a podcast of my talking right now. He's yet to post on how informed he's become. Uh, his his website, The Ringer, has done several excellent articles on the situation. I wonder if Simmons is in a position of not wanting to, as they say, blow up his friend Daryl's spot. Over on ESPN, Stephen A. Smith confessed to a general ignorance of the geopolitical situation, yet still managed to yell at us quite passionately. Similarly harsh toward Maury was a long statement by Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Sai, T-S-A-I. Is that how you pronounce his name, John? I'm not sure. T-S-A-I. Owner for the Brooklyn Nets, who also owns Tencent, which obviously has a deal with China. I'm sorry, with, with the NBA. To broadcast NBA games in China, things of that nature. Joe Sai, that is how you pronounce it. He does not, by the way, own Tencent. He owns or partly owns Alibaba. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say this. I have nothing to say about China, Hong Kong, the protests that take place there, what have you. Obviously, because if you did, you would immediately know that it's ludicrous to describe the Hong Kong protests as a separatist movement like Joe Tsai did. Also, you might notice that separatist movement is the exact phrase the official government communications ludicrously used to describe these human rights protesters. And you could have done something. To educate yourself, Daryl Morey made his tweet on Friday. It's been four days, four days since those that recording that I played for you. You could have, I don't know, read a newspaper article, gone to the BBC, done some minimal work to figure out the situation in Hong Kong. There is information that is really quite easily accessible, and that's because we don't live in China. And that information would clearly describe the situation as not being controversial at all. It is a classic case of oppression versus the demand for something resembling the kind of freedom that makes Stephen A. Smith's livelihood possible. But if you, as you say, Stephen A., have done nothing, at least we can move on, right? Wait, what's that? Oh, your nothing to say has a codicil that is a blistering defense of your willful ignorance? Here's the reality. Just like Stephen A. works for ESPN, Covering the NBA, both entities doing business in China and with China. Also understanding that certain things that one may be ignorant to or whatever. Here's the point that I am qualified to say. Daryl Morey, 
a good man, an exceptional executive, and a conscientious human being, what were you thinking speaking up on this issue? That much I can say. Because you see, as your team is over there, and you take this kind of position, it's not just about your feelings. It's about the Houston Rockets. It's about the National Basketball Association. It's about a multitude of people that extends far beyond yourself that you have compromised because you had this insatiable appetite to disseminate a tweet. No, wrong, incorrect. Well, actually, right about ESPN and corporate parent Disney. There's Disney Hong Kong. A couple years ago, they opened the colossal Disney Shanghai, constructed at a cost of $5.5 billion. Disney owns 43% of that. The government of Shanghai owns the remaining stake, meaning the government of China is Disney's literal partner in a billion-dollar enterprise. So that is quite correct and quite clarifying that Stephen A's corporate bosses have a lot to lose if Stephen A expresses anything close to a reasonable opinion. And by the way, if you're like, oh, why would the Chinese government go after him? The whole issue is that the Chinese government went after Daryl Morey for tweeting something much more anodyne than what Stephen A. should be saying in defense of Daryl Morey and his tweet. You don't think Stephen A. Smith would be in trouble if he expressed a Daryl Morey was right attitude? He just told you he would. He continues. See, folks want to sit up here and act like we all should have the license to say what we want to say, how we want to say it to whomever we damn well please, because it's in the interest of righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, things aren't that simple all the time. Your view of how things should be isn't always shared. And sometimes you take a unilateral or a monolithic approach to things, and they're neither unilateral or monolithic in any way. What am I saying here? I'm saying that Daryl Morey had an obligation to think about the Houston Rockets organization and about the National Basketball Association before himself, particularly when all that entailed you was an impulse. Wrong use of entailed, but also crazy. This wasn't a proportional or even foreseeable reaction by China. This wasn't kneeling during the national anthem or wearing hoodies during warm-ups where the design is to associate yourself with a cause to say something that is a provocation. This statement by Maury to an American, to anyone who understands basic human rights, basically to anyone who hasn't been propagandized their whole life, uh, the cause is just uncontroversial. Oppressive regime is repressive. Humans should have basic human freedoms. Daryl Morey is selfish for saying so. You know what? He's about as selfish as I am for saying what I'm about to say. Because once you hear what I'm about to say, maybe someone can make the case that Slate could use an advertiser or piss off a Stephen A. Smith superfan when I call his opinions ignorant, bloviating, bordering on the immoral. To take five days and not familiarize yourself with the basic contours of a world event is malpractice. And because you are so proudly ignorant on the subject, 
you are unqualified to issue a judgment or an opinion on this. That makes your entire talk on this matter worthless. Doesn't stop him from talking, though. Because he had no business doing what he did. A 20-year relationship between the Rockets and China, virtually down the tubes. Jobs lost. Millions of dollars compromised. Because you want to tweet a sentence. Nope, that is not why. It is because of China's overreaction. The entire analysis is, you know, when you want to do business with China, you have to follow their rules, even when their rule is autocracy and over-the-top punishing of critics. All right, fine. But why isn't the other side of that business transaction, why shouldn't that be honored? The NBA signed a $1.5 billion contract with the Chinese company Tencent. Because the NBA wanted $1.5 billion, but Tencent wanted something too. Tencent got consideration, a part of every contract, and that is the right to play these NBA games. So couldn't you make the argument, in fact, I'm going to do so here, that just as the United States should understand, or United States companies should understand when they do business with a foreign entity, that there are some sensitivities with that entity? Sure. But shouldn't that entity also understand when you're doing business with a United States company, especially a company like the NBA that prides itself on being progressive and favoring the free rights of its employees? Shouldn't China understand that you don't need to pluck out a random tweet and cause an international incident? They caused it. If I want to criticize China for reportedly imprisoning a million Uyghurs, I can do that because I am an American. If China is upset and eager to punish me for saying there are detention camps reportedly imprisoning a million Uyghurs, the fault isn't my words for saying so. The fault is A, their policies, and B, their overvigilance insisting that my words not be heard. Now, look, if I were to walk into a business, if I worked for a company that was doing business with China and we wanted to build a water park in China and I walked in and three sentences in, I said, hey, what about these million Uyghurs? Then you could fault me for violating the norms of business meetings. But Daryl Morey didn't do that. Daryl Morey expressed a benign statement of solidarity with a group that is unfairly being oppressed. He did it on Twitter. Twitter, by the way, isn't even allowed to exist on the Chinese Internet. I mean... Stephen A. could have, if he wanted to, if he was read in on the subject, or if he was allowed to by his bosses, certainly could have constructed an informed rant in Stephen A. style based on facts that go like this. Who is causing the problem? Who is elevating this to an international incident? Who is bringing attention to a situation that the Chinese want ignored? Is it Daryl Morey? It is not. It is China. You don't come into my house, China, and tell me what you say or what not to say when I'm doing the saying in a forum that's not even allowed in China. This is all entailed on you, China. Now, if you want to know who I was was most disappointed with, it was Bomani Jones, the smartest person on ESPN, but perhaps most importantly on ESPN. At the same time, I'm looking at Daryl Morey and I'm like, dog, what are you doing and what were you thinking? Because and the reason I say that is when Colin Kaepernick did the thing that he did with uh, the first time that he did not stand for the national anthem, he said explicitly that he was willing to risk his career behind making that statement. Daryl Morey wasn't work trying to risk his career behind making this statement. He just sent something out on Twitter and then all of a sudden looked up and was like, whoa, man, we have a gigantic problem. Now, where the league, I think, is in a trick bag here and where I think it's too easy for everybody to get on their high horse about this is 
eight, man. They make a lot of money over there. This particular team is a big deal in that market spoke and said, we're not with this. You could say that it's coming from the government, but it also appears to be coming from the citizenry. Well, it's coming from the citizenry because it was highlighted and turned into a cause by the Chinese government who doesn't allow the citizenry to know anything it doesn't want the citizenry to know. If China had ignored it, no one would have known about it. You can't blame Daryl Morey for tweeting an obviously correct moral stance as he is a high-profile figure in a league that prides itself on championing correct moral stances. Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, does not try to dissuade its players or executives from weighing in on social issues. Part of the brand of the NBA is that they stand by their players for being active voices in the community, be that community their immediate communities or the world community. There was never a but not about China exception, nor should there have been. If you want to argue, well, this was so obviously out of bounds, it wasn't. There was nothing obvious about this tweet. As I said, it wasn't even tweeted in a forum that a regular citizen of China could read, though it is monitored by Chinese censors. And because Jones raised Kaepernick, I want to talk about that for a second because I was thinking of the Kaepernick example. Arguing that Maury is wrong because his opinion risks the business interest of his bosses, isn't that the same reason that Kaepernick was criticized? I mean, some of the criticism, there was the respect the flag criticism, but then there was also the, come on, think about the business at stake. There was that criticism too. The potential to upset customers. Because Kaepernick said he's willing to risk his career. That is brave, but it shouldn't be necessary. To take another example, when LeBron James was on the Cavaliers, he and his teammates wore hoodies to raise attention to the Trayvon Martin shooting, to stand with Trayvon. But LeBron never said, I am willing to risk my career over it, nor should he have had to say it. For opinion journalists to side with corporate interests against moral actors because the corporate profit-making interests are obviously correct is in fact incorrect. And it's probably also informed by the fact that Bomani Jones cannot express a different opinion from his perch there at ESPN. And oh, by the way, in actual basketball news, the Raptors beat the Rockets in a preseason game in Japan. No players were injured, and more importantly, neither were the feelings of an oversensitive, repressive regime. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He tries not to quote the Wizard of Oz because the wizard once said, every pusillanimous creature that crawls on the earth or slinks through slimy seas has a brain. And Daniel thought, what about the jellyfish, the starfish, the sea urchin? It really ruined the wizard form. Christina DeJosa, another esteemed producer of the gist, though she wonders why human coroners are lagging the technology of munchkin coroners who pronounce subjects not only merely dead, but really most sincerely dead. The Gist, your show for words and javelins and curds unraveling. Umpru Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening.